0: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 114, the September Campaign, part 6, the last days of peace. During the last two weeks of August 1939, everything was coming into alignment for a war in Europe. Among the diplomatic corps of various nations, messages were being exchanged that an invasion of Poland would be an irreversible catalyst for a continental war. As one memorandum by the German state secretary would say on August 15th, quote, The French ambassador called on me today after his return from leave. The ambassador then turned to general politics, expressing himself somewhat as follows and speaking calmly and decisively. France had taken her stand. Her relations with Poland and with Britain were well known. A conflict between Germany and Poland would automatically involve France. This was a fact, not a desire, on the part of France." End quote. In the Soviet Union, the non-aggression pact would be signed between Germany and the Soviet Union on August 23rd, taking the Soviet Union out of any conflict with Germany for the immediate future. On the 23rd, the Danzig Senate would also vote to join with Germany, which in any previous month would have been the biggest story anywhere, but barely gets a mention, and in fact caused no real responses from Britain, France, and Poland because the war would then start. Military preparations were happening in many nations, with militaries being mobilized, navies moving out to sea to avoid being trapped in port, troops were moving towards the borders. The Germans would even accidentally invade Poland on August 26th, after ordering the start of the invasion and then canceling it, but that cancellation not reaching all of the troops in time. Europe was rapidly cascading towards war, and it did not appear that anything could stop it. During the last two weeks of August, the number of German soldiers who were mobilized would rapidly increase. On August 26th, another two infantry divisions were mobilized, bringing the total number up to 28. At the same time, 50,000 additional Luftwaffe personnel were activated. Just a few days later, another seven infantry divisions would be mobilized when more reservists and Landwehr troops received their mobilization notices. These efforts allowed a large number of men to be available to the armies invading Poland, but there were some concerns about the overall quality of the troops that were arriving near the Polish border. The bulk of these late mobilized units would be placed in Army Group North, and General Bach, the commander of Army Group North, would not be very complimentary about his new resources. Bach's biggest complaint was simply that the new troops arriving at the front did not have enough training before they arrived and were given to him. Some of them had seen some level of training, but not all of it was the most recent or of the highest quality. There's also some comments about some of the new infantrymen being a bit on the old side. Part of this may have been true, but part of it might be been attributable to the fact that Bach was in general working with far more reservists than von Rundstedt was with Army Group South. The German army had multiple different tiers of divisions, with the first tier being the best equipped and trained, with von Rundstedt receiving 17 of these and Bach only 9. The reservists mobilized in the last two weeks of August were largely of second and third tier formations. By the time they were in their staging positions, the units were provided with 10 days of rations to use during the invasion, although some of that would be eaten while they waited for the attack to begin. With the ground units moving into position, starting on August 19th, the German Navy would also begin to activate its war plans. This involved not just preparing ships to leave port, but also dispatching them into the open ocean for two important reasons. The first was simply so that they could begin their tasks as early as possible, which for most of the Kriegsmarine's ships meant commerce raiding. The goal was to have as many commerce raiding vessels, be they submarines or surface ships, out in the trade lanes the instant that naval warfare could begin with Britain and France. The second reason was simply to prevent any possibility of the ships being intercepted on their way out of German ports. If the ships were in port when hostilities started with Britain, the Royal Navy would know exactly where they were and might take measures to prevent their departure. For this reason, 34 U-boats would leave port between August 19th and 23rd. During the same time, two pocket battleships, the Deutschland and the Admiral Graf Spey, would be sent on its way out into the ocean. Accompanying both of these ships were dedicated supply vessels, the Westerwald and the Altmark respectively, whose sole purpose was to keep the warships supplied and capable of action for as long as possible. A much greater concern for Poland was the fact that the old pre-dreadnought Schleswig Holstein would arrive at Danzig on August 25th, with a 225-man naval assault detachment and its 28-centimeter guns prepared for shore bombardment. While the army and navy were being mobilized, government propaganda was also once again ratcheting up in intensity, with German newspapers claiming all kinds of actions were being taken by Poland. The killing of ethnic Germans in Poland and the destruction of their property was a common refrain, which had been a common accusation for months before August. William Schreier would state that these claims were accepted by most Germans as true, and in this era, it's important to remember how much more localized communications were in the pre-internet age. Germans in 1939 could not pop online to see what was being said in Polish or British newspapers or to chat with people from around the world. They really just had the newspapers and maybe the radio, and that was about it. It is also worth noting that while the German military had been through preparations for war before, so had the German people. The Munich crisis is called the Munich crisis because of the threat of war breaking out, with the same types of stories of violence against ethnic Germans being present in the German press about what was happening in Czechoslovakia. So there was probably some hope of that happening again, although Hitler had decided that such negotiations would not be allowed to happen in the case of Poland. Poland was not idle while Germany was making all of these preparations for war, and on August 24th they had started a partial mobilization using their pre-arranged secret mobilization plan. This was accomplished by color-coded cards being sent to reservists who had already been told what each color might mean, with certain colors matching up with certain concentration points due to the planned enemy. This allowed about three-quarters of the troops that would be available to the army being made ready without a public and open mobilization, with somewhere around 20 infantry divisions and four cavalry brigades of reservists mobilized in this way to greatly expand the standing army. There were some challenges involved in this mobilization beyond its secrecy. The first problem was one of equipment. Due to the very much ongoing nature of rearmament, some Polish units would be given weapons to use during the upcoming defense that they had never seen, let alone had any training on. For example, the WZ-35UR anti-tank rifle, which most soldiers did not even know existed before it was given to them on mobilization. Here's a gun, figure out how to use it. The second problem was one of training. Much like the late mobilized German units, these Polish soldiers would not have time for any kind of training before being called into action, requiring them to pull on training and exercises that may have been years in the past. This problem was exacerbated by the fact that the Polish military was forced to call upon far more classes of reservists than the Germans were, meaning older men, further from their training, were being mobilized. The third problem was one of supplies. Due to inadequate supply preparations, there were problems supplying Polish units with more than a few days of supplies, be they ammunition or food. Just like the German Navy, the Polish Navy, or marynarka, would also order its ships out of port before the start of hostilities. In this case, instead of moving them into raiding positions, three Polish destroyers along with two freighters would sail for Britain where it was hoped that they would be able to assist the Royal Navy. The Germans knew that these ships had departed, but the war had not started by the time they cleared the Denmark Straits, so there was nothing that they could do to interdict their travels. On the side of the Polish Air Force, it would begin to disperse its aircraft on August 27th, an action that made a resupply and maintenance maybe a bit more challenging, but would prevent them from being caught on concentrated airstrips by enemy air attack. Doing everything covertly was politically very important, which was made very apparent on August 29th. Many preparations had been made to execute this secret mobilization, but there were limits on what could be done, and it also just slowed everything down. By the 29th, with the possibility of war seeming to be a certainty, the Polish government would finally order a general and public mobilization, and immediately the British and French protested. There was a focus bordering on an obsession in London and Paris to prevent any Polish act of provocation that would give Germany an excuse for war. This resulted in several reminders about the necessity of not allowing Polish response to provocation to be something that happened at all. But then on the 29th, messages arrived that required Poland to cancel its mobilization because that in and of itself was seen as an act of provocation. The Polish government did not feel that it could openly defy its allies, and so the mobilization was canceled, only to then be ordered once again on the 31st. Obviously, it's impossible to know the exact effect that this two-day delay had on the overall readiness of the Polish military, but more time is always useful. More time doing the public and open and speedy mobilization could have changed things. Maybe. It certainly would have made the Polish military more ready for what was about to happen. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... What was even more remarkable about the Poles agreeing to delay their mobilization was the fact that Poland had in fact already been invaded on August the 26th. Now, of course, the full invasion of Poland would not begin until September 1st, but the original plan was for the invasion to begin five days earlier on August 26th, which brings us to our first discussion of communication times during the war. When the order for an attack was put forward and given to the troops, it could not be instantly relayed to all of the troops involved. Disseminating that kind of information took time, even if it could be aided by radio and telephone. On August 25th, the order for the attack had not yet gone out, and instead Hitler was delaying the decision. To be fair, this was a pretty big decision, especially given the fact that by August 25th, it was clear that the British and French were not going to back down, and so it was very likely that they would enter the war in defense of Poland. There was also the constant discussions of negotiations that were cycling around European capitals during August 1939, with many efforts made to mediate some kind of peaceful solution. The most likely possibility on the 25th was some kind of peace conference hosted by Italy, but nothing was certain, and there were many roadblocks to making that happen, particularly Poland's desire to not be forced into a Munich situation where they were not directly involved with the talks. On the 25th, Hitler would ask what the last possible moment could be that he could give the order and still allow time for the troops to kick off the attack at the desired 4.30 a.m. the next day he was told that it was 3 p.m. He would delay as long as possible, but at 3.02 p.m., the order would be dispatched to execute Fall Weiss the next morning, August 26th. This had been the date that had been earlier earmarked as the date that the war would begin, and directives from the general staff were already prepared. Here is one from General Keitel. Quote, the Fuhrer and Reich Chancellor has ordered the mobilization without public proclamation, X day of the bulk of the Wehrmacht. X day is August 26, 1939. With effect from the same date, the Fuhrer has conferred upon the commander-in-chief of the army authority to exercise executive power in the east and west operational areas of the army. On the crossing of the Reich Frontier East, the operational areas will be extended forward in accordance with the ground gained by the troops. End quote. There were several things that happened. The first was that messages were sent out to the numerous German military formations to begin preparations for the attack. Telephone links between Poland and Germany were cut. Units began moving into attack positions right on the border, which resulted in several clashes between German troops and Polish border guards. In the air, the Luftwaffe increased its rate of reconnaissance flights over Polish territory, sorties that had already been running during the previous weeks and even months. The British and Polish governments announced the official signature of their mutual defense pact on the 25th of August, which had been publicly discussed as far back as March 1939, but was now signed. And therefore, you know, publicly was announced by the two governments that they were not just going to absolutely work together, but they were open to further negotiations with Germany. Now, as much as Hitler wanted the war to begin, he also was hopeful that it could happen without Germany appearing to every other nation in the world as rejecting options for peace. And so the invasion was canceled. But like initiating an invasion, it could not happen instantly. In some ways, trying to cancel it was even harder than trying to kick it off in the first place. All the same problems existed as when the order was originally given, but on top of those challenges were also the facts that units had already started moving from their staging areas and had started moving towards the border. Messages were now not going to known locations, but also had to find their way up to units that were already on the march to the Polish border. And they were actually pretty successful at calling things off, all things considered, except in a few different instances. In East Prussia, a cavalry patrol would cross the border and would actually engage Polish units in a firefight, resulting in one German death, the first of the Second World War. In the south, the unit assigned to capture a train station on the modern-day border of Czechia and Slovakia did not receive the message. They would be spotted near the rail tunnel that was near the rail station, and another firefight would occur, with a few deaths on both sides— but the vast majority of German units were halted and called back before they actually executed any of their attack plans. In retrospect, canceling the invasion at this point was probably a mistake, because on August 26th, the Polish military had only really started its mobilization efforts, and at that time, German units would have outnumbered the Poles by something like 3 to 1. But by September 1st, when the invasion actually happened, that advantage had degraded to around 2 to 1. The one positive was that it gave peace a chance, with many governments around Europe hoping that peace could be maintained through some kind of mutual negotiation summit or conference or something. I won't be going through a full list of every communication that was occurring around Europe in the pursuit of peace in the last week of August 1939, but we will touch on a few different discussions that were occurring. The general theme, though, was usually the same, with the same problems kind of halting any attempt to, to kickstart conversations. We'll talk about each government's position and some of the problems that, that they had in trying to enter into negotiations or things that they did to prevent them from being successful. The Polish government, above all, refused to allow any negotiation that did not involve Polish representatives that would dictate the future of Poland, and they also refused to enter into any kind of personal negotiations with the Germans in which a singular representative of Poland was required to make decisions without consulting Warsaw. Poland, essentially, refused to be Czechoslovakia, both in watching the Munich conference from afar in September 1938 when its future was decided without a Czech representative in the room, and then it also refused to be Czechoslovakia in March 1939 when President Emil Hacha had been forced to give in to German demands while being alone in a room with a bunch of German leaders. The German government was not necessarily refusing to negotiate with the other nations, but they wanted to sort of negotiate from a position of strength, and they really did not want Polish representatives involved. Basically, they wanted to recreate the conditions of Munich. The British government was also willing to negotiate, but in several crucial instances would put some kind of precondition on negotiations, with the most difficult being a call for Poland and Germany to demobilize their militaries before negotiations could begin, with both nations refusing to give such an order because uh, they didn't think the other one would, which if we're being honest from the future, was probably accurate on both counts. The Italian government was trying to place itself in the position as the great peacemaker of Europe, with Mussolini trying to, somewhat desperately, put himself in a position as the mediator between Hitler and the other leaders. The French and British also hoped that Mussolini could fill that role, so he wasn't just daydreaming, and these efforts by the Italians were not totally altruistic as well, with the primary concern in Rome being that they were going to be pulled into a war years before the Italian military was ready for such an endeavor so they should probably do their best to maintain peace. The French, well, the French were in a tough spot. The French government, led by Premier Daladay, was driven by a few key concerns that would mostly dictate their actions during the last days of peace. The first was that they didn't really want to go to war. French rearmament was accelerating, but it was by no means complete, and it was felt that the longer that peace was maintained, the better it would be for French military readiness. The second was that they felt like they could not abandon their promises to Britain and Poland, because if they did so, it seemed very possible that the British would then not honor their commitments to France if the Germans selected France as their next target, which was certainly a possibility. The third key concern was based around the fact that some leading French politicians and also the French ambassador in Berlin believed right to the end that Hitler was bluffing. This idea was obviously very attractive because it was basically the foundation upon which the entirety of French and British diplomatic strategy had been built upon for most of 1939. Britain had provided Poland with a guarantee. France had reiterated its commitment under the idea that such declarations, you know, publicly and and very loudly, would force Germany to back down. Now, of course, we know that, of course, Hitler was not bluffing, at least partially because Hitler believed the same thing about the French and the British, that they would, at the moment of greatest crisis, back down. This line of thinking was taken to its final phase when the French ambassador in Berlin would write to Daladier, and Daladier would read his letter to the French cabinet on August 31st. One of the French politicians who was in attendance at that meeting would write of the effects of this message on the cabinet session on those who wanted to proceed with negotiations at any cost. Quote, the object was to bluff. The one who bluffs last will have the upper hand. We must just be brazen. When the objective is to wait and be bold, enthusiasm and the easy way out go hand in hand. No more debates. Coulandre's opinion shut up those who were recalcitrant. End quote. And was also leading the charge in the cabinet against negotiations, saying that, quote, do we agree to go and chop up Poland and dishonor ourselves, then wind up with war in any case? The lesson of Munich is that Hitler's signature isn't worth anything, End quote. It would be Daliday, and those who agreed with him in the French cabinet and in French politics who would carry the day in these conversations in, in the days before the start of the war and really the days before the French and British entry on September 4th. In the end, the efforts made by all five nations to maintain peace did not fail because nobody wanted peace. Many governments and many politicians within those governments wanted to prevent war. But by the last week of August 1939, they were no longer willing to prevent war at any cost. And in a situation where one group is not concerned with preserving peace and another group is not willing to give in to the other's demands without reservation, conflicts will often occur as it would on September 1st, 1939. In reality, the last-minute efforts of August 31st were too late anyway. Negotiation efforts continued into the afternoon and evening, but by 12.40 p.m., so around noon, on August 31st, Hitler had once again given the order for Fall Weiss to proceed the next day, and this time it would not be rescinded. On the afternoon of August 31st, Directive No. 1 for the conduct of the war would be issued, and it would state, quote, Now that all of the political possibilities of disposing by peaceful means of a situation on the eastern frontier are exhausted, I have determined a solution by force. The attack on Poland is to be carried out in accordance with the preparations made for Case White. Allotment of tasks and the operational target remain unchanged. Date of attack, September 1st, 1939. Time of attack, 4.45 a.m. This timing also applies to the operation at Danzig, Bay of Danzig, and the Dershow Bridge. In the West, it is important that the responsibility for opening of hostilities should rest squarely on England and France. For the time being, insignificant frontier violations should be met by purely local action. The neutrality of Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Switzerland, to which we have given assurances, must be scrupulously observed. On land, the German western frontier is not to be crossed without my express permission. At sea, the same applies for all warlike actions, or actions which could be regarded as such. If Britain and France open hostilities against Germany, it is the task of the Wehrmacht formations operating in the West to conserve their forces as much as possible, and thus maintain the conditions for a successful conclusion of the operations against Poland. Within these limits, enemy forces and their military economic resources are to be damaged as much as possible. Orders to go over to the attack I reserve in any case to myself." The army will hold the West Wall and make preparations to prevent its being outflanked in the north through a violation of Belgium or Dutch territory by the Western powers. The navy will carry on warfare against merchant shipping, directed mainly at England. The air force is, in the first place, to prevent the French and British air forces from attacking the German army and the German Lebensraum. In conducting the war against England, preparations are to be made for the use of the Luftwaffe in disrupting British supplies by sea, the armaments industry, and the transport of troops to France. A favorable opportunity is to be taken for the effective attack on massed British naval units, especially against battleships and aircraft carriers. Attacks against London are reserved for my decision. Preparations are to be made for attacks against the British mainland, bearing in mind that partial success with insufficient forces is in all circumstances to be avoided." End quote. And so, with that directive given to the German military, Germany was going to war. I hope you will join me next episode, as the podcast also enters the war, as we cover the opening moments of the conflict early in the morning on September 1st, 1939.